Chapter Five of the Spirit of the Border by Zane Grey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Leonard Wilson. Chapter Five. Silvertip turned to his braves and, giving a brief command, sprang from the raft. The warriors closed in around the brothers, two grasping each by the arms and the remaining Indian taking care of the horse. The captives were then led ashore, where Silvertip awaited them. When the horse was clear of the raft, which task necessitated considerable labor on the part of the Indians, the chief seized the grapevine that was now plainly in sight, and severed it with one blow of his tomahawk. The raft dashed forward with a lurch and drifted downstream. In the clear water, joe could see the cunning trap which had caused the death of bill and ensured the captivity of himself and his brother the crafty savages had trimmed a six-inch sapling and anchored it under the water they waited the heavy end leaving the other pointing upstream to this last had been tied the grapevine when the drifting raft reached the sapling the indians concealed in the willows pulled hard on the improvised rope the end of the sapling stuck up like a hook, and the aft was caught and held. The killing of the helmsman showed the Indians' foresight. Even had the raft drifted on downstream, the brothers would have been helpless on a craft they could not manage. After all, Joe thought, he had not been so far wrong when he half fancied that an Indian lay behind Shawnee Rock, and he marveled at this clever trick which had so easily effected their capture. But he had little time to look around at the scene of action. There was a moment only in which to study the river to learn if the unfortunate raftsman's body had appeared. It was not to be seen. The river ran swiftly and hid all evidence of the tragedy under its smooth surface. When the brave who had gone back to the raft for the goods joined his companion, the two hurried Joe up the bank after the others. Once upon level ground, Joe saw before him an open forest. On the border of this, the Indians stopped long enough to bind the prisoners' wrists with thongs of deer hide. While two of the braves performed this office, Silvertip leaned against a tree and took no notice of the brothers. When they were thus securely tied, one of their captors addressed the chief who at once led the way westward through the forest. The savages followed in single file, with Joe and Jim in the middle of the line. The last Indian tried to mount Lance, but the thoroughbred would have none of him, and after several efforts the savage was compelled to desist. Mose trotted reluctantly along behind the horse. Although the chief preserved a dignified mien, his braves were disposed to be gay. They were in high glee over their feat of capturing the pale-faces, and kept up an incessant jabbering. One Indian, who walked directly behind Joe, continually prodded him with the stock of a rifle, and whenever Joe turned, the brawny redskin grinned as he grunted, Urgh. Joe observed that this huge savage had a broad face of rather a lighter shade of red than his companion's. Perhaps he intended those rifle prods in friendliness, for although they certainly amused him, he would allow no one else to touch Joe. 
but it would have been more pleasing had he shown his friendship in a gentle manner. This Indian carried Joe's pack, much to his own delight, especially as his companions evinced an envious curiosity. The big fellow would not, however, allow them to touch it. "'He's a cheerful brute,' remarked Joe to Jem. Er, grunted the big Indian, jamming Joe with his rifle stock. Joe took heed to the warning and spoke no more. He gave all his attention to the course over which he was being taken. Here was his first opportunity to learn something of Indians and their woodcraft. It occurred to him that his captors would not have been so gay and careless had they not believed themselves safe from pursuit, and he concluded that they were leisurely conducting him to one of the Indian towns. He watched the supple figure before him, wondering at the quick step, light as the fall of a leaf, and tried to walk as softly. He found, however, that where the Indian readily avoided the sticks and brush, he was unable to move without snapping twigs. Now and then he would look up and study the lay of the land ahead, and as he came nearer to certain rocks and trees, he scrutinized them closely in order to remember their shape and general appearance. He believed he was blazing out in his mind this woodland trail, so that should fortune favor him and he contrive to escape, he would be able to find his way back to the river. Also, he was enjoying the wild scenery. The forest would have appeared beautiful even to one indifferent to such charms, and Joe was far from that. Every moment he felt steal stronger over him a subtle influence which he could not define. Half unconsciously he tried to analyze it, but it baffled him. He could no more explain what fascinated him than he could understand what caused the melancholy quiet which hung over the glades and hollows. He had pictured a real forest so differently from this. Here was a long lane paved with springy moss and fenced by bright green sassafras. There a secluded dale, dotted with pale blue blossoms, over which the giant cottonwoods leaned their heads, jealously guarding the delicate flowers from the sun. Beech trees, growing close in clanny groups, spread their straight limbs gracefully. The white birches gleamed like silver wherever a stray sunbeam stole through the foliage, and the oaks, monarchs of the forest, rose over all, dark, rugged, and kingly. Joe soon understood why the party traveled through such open forest. The chief, seeming hardly to deviate from his direct course, kept clear of broken ground, matted thickets, and tangled windfalls. Joe got a glimpse of dark ravines, and heard the music of tumbling waters. He saw gray cliffs grown over with vines, and full of holes and crevices. Steep ridges covered with dense patches of briar and hazel, rising in the way. Yet the Shawnee always found an easy path. The sun went down behind the foliage in the west, and shadows appeared low in the glens. Then the trees faded into an indistinct mass. A purple shade settled down over the forest, and night brought the party to a halt. The Indians selected a sheltered spot under the lee of a knoll, at the base of which ran a little brook. Here in this enclosed space were the remains of a campfire. 
Evidently the Indians had halted there that same day, for the logs still smoldered. While one brave fanned the embers, another took from a neighboring branch a haunch of deer meat. A blaze was soon coaxed from the dull coals. More fuel was added, and presently a cheerful fire shone on the circle of dusky forms. It was a picture which Joe had seen in many a boyish dream. Now that he was a part of it, he did not dwell on the hopelessness of the situation, nor of the hostile chief whose enmity he had incurred. Almost, it seemed, he was glad of this chance to watch the Indians and listen to them. He had been kept apart from Jim, and it appeared to Joe that their captors treated his brother with a contempt which they did not show him. Silvertip had no doubt informed them that Jim had been on his way to teach the Indians of the white man's god. Jim sat with drooping head. His face was sad, and evidently he took the most disheartening view of his capture. When he had eaten the slice of venison given him, he lay down with his back to the fire. Silvertip, in these surroundings, showed his real character. He had appeared friendly in the settlement, but now he was the relentless savage, a son of the wilds, free as an eagle. His dignity as a chief kept him aloof from his braves. He had taken no notice of the prisoners since the capture. He remained silent, steadily regarding the fire with his somber eyes. At length, glancing at the big Indian, he motioned toward the prisoners, and with a single word, stretched himself on the leaves. Joe noted the same changelessness of expression in the other dark faces as he had seen in Silvertip's. It struck him forcibly. When they spoke in their soft, guttural tones, or burst into a low, not unmusical laughter, or sat gazing stolidly into the fire, their faces seemed always the same, inscrutable like the depths of the forest now hidden in night. One thing Joe felt rather than saw, these savages were fierce and untamable. He was sorry for Jim, because, as he believed, it would be as easy to teach the panther gentleness toward his prey as to instill into one of these wild creatures a belief in Christ. The braves manifested keen pleasure in anticipation as to what they would get out of the pack, which the Indian now opened. Time and again the big brave placed his broad hand on the shoulder of a comrade Indian and pushed him backward. Finally the pack was opened. It contained a few articles of wearing apparel, a pair of boots and a pipe and pouch of tobacco. The big Indian kept the latter articles, grunting with satisfaction, and threw the boots and clothes to the others. Immediately there was a scramble. One brave, after a struggle with another, got possession of both boots. He at once slipped off his moccasins and drew on the white man's foot coverings. He strutted around in them a few moments, but his proud manner soon changed to disgust. Cowhide had none of the soft, yielding qualities of buckskin, and hurt the Indian's feet. Sitting down, he pulled one off, not without difficulty, for the boots were wet. But he could not remove the other. He hesitated a moment, being aware of the subdued merriment of his comrades, and then held up his foot to the nearest one. This chanced to be the big Indian, 
who evidently had a keen sense of humor. Taking hold of the boot with both hands, he dragged the luckless brave entirely around the campfire. The fun, however, was not to be all one-sided. The big Indian gave a more strenuous pull, and the boot came off suddenly. Unprepared for this, he lost his balance and fell down the bank almost into the creek. He held on to the boot, nevertheless, and getting up, threw it into the fire. The braves quieted down after that, and soon lapsed into slumber, leaving the big fellow to whom the chief had addressed his brief command acting as guard. Observing Joe watching him as he puffed on his new pipe, he grinned, and spoke in broken English that was intelligible, and much of a surprise to the young man. Pale face, tobacco, eat good. Then seeing that Joe made no effort to follow his brother's initiative, for Jim was fast asleep, he pointed to the recumbent figures and spoke again. Ah, oh, pale face, sleep, engine wigwams, near setting sun on the following morning joe was awakened by the pain in his legs which had been bound all night he was glad when the bonds were cut and the party took up its westward march the indians though somewhat quieter displayed the same carelessness they did not hurry nor use particular caution but selected the most open paths through the forest they even halted while one of their number crept up on a herd of browsing deer. About noon the leader stopped to drink from a spring. His braves followed suit, and permitted the white prisoners to quench their thirst. When they were about to start again, the single note of a bird far away in the woods sounded clearly on the quiet air. Joe would not have given heed to it had he been less attentive. He instantly associated this peculiar bird note with the sudden stiffening of Silvertip's body and his attitude of intense listening. Low exclamations came from the braves as they bent to catch the lightest sound. Presently, above the murmur of the gentle fall of water over the stones, rose that musical note once more. It was made by a bird, Joe thought, and yet, judged by the actions of the Indians, how potent with meaning beyond that of the simple melody of the woodland songster. He turned, half expecting to see somewhere in the treetops the bird which had wrought so sudden a change in his captors. As he did so, from close at hand came the same call, now louder, but identical with the one that had deceived him. It was an answering signal, and had been given by Silvertip. It flashed into Joe's mind that other savages were in the forest. They had run across the Shawnee's trail, and were thus communicating with them. Soon dark figures could be discerned against the patches of green thicket. They came nearer and nearer, and now entered the open glade where Silvertip stood with his warriors. Joe counted twelve, and noted that they differed from his captors. He had only time to see that this difference consisted in the headdress, and in the color and quantity of paint on their bodies, when his gaze was attracted and riveted to the foremost figures. The first was that of a very tall and stately chief, toward whom Silvertip now advanced with every show of respect. In this Indian's commanding stature, in his reddish-bronze face, stern and powerful, there were readable the characteristics of a king. 
in his deep-set eyes gleaming from under a ponderous brow in his mastiff-like jaw in every feature of his haughty face were visible all the high intelligence the consciousness of past valor and the power and authority that denote a great chieftain the second figure was equally striking for the remarkable contrast it afforded to the chiefs despite the gaudy garments the paint the fringed and beaded buckskin leggings all the indian accoutrements and garments which bedecked this person he would have been known anywhere as a white man his skin was burned to a dark bronze but it had not the red tinge which characterizes the indian the white man had indeed a strange physiognomy the forehead was narrow and sloped backward from the brow denoting animal instincts the eyes were close together yellowish-brown in color and had a peculiar vibrating movement as though they were hung on a pivot like a compass needle the nose was long and hooked and the mouth set in a thin cruel line there was in the man's aspect an extraordinary combination of ignorance vanity cunning and ferocity while the two chiefs held a short consultation this savage-appearing white man addressed the brothers where are you and where are you going he asked roughly confronting jim my name is downs i am a preacher and was on my way to the moravian mission to preach to the indians you are a white man will you help us if jim expected the information would please his interrogator he was mistaken so you're one of them yes i'll do something for you when i get back from this hunt i'll cut your heart out chop it up and feed it to the buzzards he said fiercely concluding his threat by striking jim a cruel blow on the head joe paled deathly white at this cowardly action and his eyes as they met the gaze of the ruffian contracted with their characteristic steely glow as if some powerful force within the depths of his being were at white heat and only this pale flash came to the surface you ain't a preacher questioned the man meeting something in joe's glance that had been absent from jim's joe made no answer and regarded the questioner steadily ever seen me before ever hear of jim girty he asked boastfully before you spoke i knew you were girty answered joe quietly how do you know ain't you afeard of what me me joe laughed in the renegade's face how'd you know me growled gertie i'll see that you have cause to remember me after this i figured there was only one so-called white man in these woods who is coward enough to strike a man whose hands are tied boy you're too free with your tongue i'll shut off your wind gertie's hand was raised but it never reached joe's neck the big indian had an hour or more previous cut joe's bonds but he still retained the thong which was left attached to joe's left wrist this allowed the young man free use of his right arm which badly swollen or not he brought into quick action when the renegade reached toward him joe knocked up the hand and instead of striking he grasped the hooked nose with all the powerful grip of his fingers gertie uttered a frightful curse he writhed with pain but could not free himself from the vice-like clutch 
he drew his tomahawk and with a scream aimed a vicious blow at joe he missed his aim however for silvertip had intervened and turned the course of the keen hatchet but the weapon struck joe a glancing blow inflicting a painful though not dangerous wound the renegade's nose was skinned and bleeding profusely he was frantic with fury and tried to get at joe but silvertip remained in front of his captive until some of the braves led gertie into the forest where the tall chief had already disappeared the nose-pulling incident added to the gaiety of the shawnees who evidently were pleased with gertie's discomfiture they jabbered among themselves and nodded approvingly at joe until a few words spoken by silvertip produced a sudden change what the words were joe could not understand but to him they sounded like french he smiled at the absurdity of imagining he had heard a savage speak a foreign language at any rate whatever had been said was trenchant with meaning the indians changed from gay to grave they picked up their weapons and looked keenly on every side the big indian at once retied joe and then all crowded round the chief did you hear what silvertip said and did you notice the effect it had whispered jim taking advantage of the moment it sounded like french but of course it wasn't replied joe it was french le vent de la mort by jove that's it what does it mean asked joe who was not a scholar the wind of death that's english but i can't apply it here can you no doubt it is some indian omen a hurried consultation over silvertip tied joe's horse and dog to the trees and once more led the way this time he avoided the open forest and kept on low ground for a long time he traveled in the bed of the brook wading when the water was shallow and always stepping where there was the least possibility of leaving a footprint not a word was spoken if either of the brothers made the lightest splash in the water or tumbled a stone into the brook the indian behind rapped him on the head with a tomahawk handle at certain places indicated by the care which silvertip exercised in walking the indian in front of the captives turned and pointed where they were to step they were hiding the trail silvertip hurried them over the stony places went more slowly through the water and picked his way carefully over the soft ground it became necessary to cross at times he stopped remaining motionless many seconds the vigilance continued all the afternoon the sun sank twilight spread its gray mantle and soon black night enveloped the forest the indians halted but made no fire they sat close together on a stony ridge silent and watchful joe pondered deeply over this behavior did the shawnees fear pursuit what had that indian chief told silvertip to joe it seemed they acted as if believing foes were on all sides though they hid their tracks it was apparently not the fear of pursuit alone which made them cautious joe reviewed the afternoon's march and dwelt upon the possible meaning of the cat-like steps the careful brushing aside of branches the roving eyes suspicious and gloomy the eager watchfulness of the advance as well as to the rear and always the strained effort to listen all of which gave him the impression 
of some grave unseen danger and now as he lay on the hard ground nearly exhausted by the long march and suffering from the throbbing wound his courage lessened somewhat and he shivered with dread the quiet and gloom of the forest these fierce wild creatures free in the heart of their own wilderness yet menaced by a foe and that strange french phrase which kept recurring in his mind all had the effect of conjuring up giant shadows in joe's fanciful mind during all his life until this moment he had never feared anything now he was afraid of the darkness the spectral trees spread long arms overhead and phantom forms stalked abroad somewhere out in that dense gloom stirred this mysterious foe the wind of death nevertheless he finally slept in the dull gray light of early morning the indians once more took up the line of march toward the west they marched all that day and at dark halted to eat and rest silvertip and another indian stood watch some time before morning joe suddenly awoke the night was dark yet it was lighter than when he had fallen asleep a pale crescent moon shone dimly through the murky clouds there was neither movement of the air nor the chirp of an insect absolute silence prevailed joe saw the indian guard leaning against a tree asleep silvertip was gone the captive raised his head and looked around for the chief there were only four indians left three on the ground and one against the tree he saw something shining near him he looked more closely and made out the object to be an eagle plume silvertip had worn in his headdress it lay on the ground near the tree joe made some slight noise which awakened the guard the indian never moved a muscle but his eyes roved everywhere he too noticed the absence of the chief at this moment from out of the depths of the woods came a swelling sigh like the moan of the night wind it rose and died away leaving the silence apparently all the deeper a shudder ran over joe's frame fascinated he watched the guard the indian uttered a low gasp his eyes started and glared wildly he rose very slowly to his full height and stood waiting listening the dark hand which held the tomahawk trembled so that little glints of moonlight glanced from the bright steel from far back in the forest deeps came that low moaning it rose from a faint murmur and swelled to a deep moan soft but clear and ended in a wail like that of a lost soul the break it made in that dead silence was awful joe's blood seemed to have curdled and frozen a cold sweat oozed from his skin and it was as if a clammy hand clutched at his heart he tried to persuade himself that the fear displayed by the savage was only superstition and that that moan was but the sigh of the night wind the indian sentinel stood as if paralyzed an instant after that weird cry and then swift as a flash and as noiseless he was gone into the gloomy forest he had fled without awakening his companions 
once more the moaning cry arose and swelled mournfully on the still night air it was close at hand the wind of death whispered joe he was shaken and unnerved by the events of the past two days and dazed from his wound his strength deserted him and he lost consciousness End of chapter 5 of The Spirit of the Border by Zane Gray. Recording by Leonard Wilson of Springfield, Ohio.